All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 16. Curtis Publishing Company and the Saturday Evening Post. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kenwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 45 minutes or so to learn about some folks from Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill who made two magazines the standouts at the turn of the 20th century, Ladies Home Journal and the Saturday Evening Post. Before the internet, before television, before radio, there were magazines. Philadelphia was the place you wanted to be if you were in the magazine business. It had the best presses, the best printers, and it had railroads to get the magazines out where they needed to go. Cyrus H.K. Curtis was the king of magazine publishing, but could only do it with the help of two amazing editors, his wife, Louisa Knapp Curtis, and his hire from Boston, George Horace Lorimer. Lorimer needed the help of another Philadelphian, Adelaide Walbaum Neal, to make the post a success. And while everyone thinks of Norman Rockwell as the painter of Saturday Evening Post covers, Catherine Richardson Wireman was painting covers for the Post and the Journal long before Rockwell. And when Curtis built his headquarters building at 6th and Walnut, he hired a local architect, Edgar Vigers Sealer. All six of these people are buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery or West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Curtis and his company made the best-selling magazines in the world, and George Lorimer practically invented white middle-class America through the articles he commissioned and published. Learn about these people and a few more today on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Yes, the Saturday Evening Post was started by Benjamin Franklin, sort of. Its family tree looks like this. On 24 December 1728, the universal instructor in all arts and sciences and Pennsylvania Gazette was conceived by Franklin, but for the first several months it was printed by Samuel Keimer. Some people say that Keimer stole Franklin's idea. However, Franklin took over on the 2nd of October, 1729. The Pennsylvania Gazette was published by him. In 1779, it became the Pennsylvania Gazette and Weekly Advertiser. And then finally in 1821, the same editors changed the name. Now it was the Saturday Evening Post. T. Cottrell Clark was initially editor. Morton McMichael was briefly editor in 1826. We'll hear more about him when we talk about Joseph Clay Neal and Louis Godey in an upcoming podcast. In the meantime, you can look at McMichael's statue 
in uh, Fairmont Park on Lemon Hill. In 1829, it became the Daily Chronicle, and then in 1838, it was the Daily Chronicle and Saturday Evening Post. 1839, just the Saturday Evening Post. It was purchased by John Stevenson, Dussault, and George Graham. In 1843, it was purchased by Samuel Patterson, and in 1897, purchased by Cyrus Curtis. It was called the Saturday Evening Post because it would be printed in time to be delivered to Philadelphia addresses in the second mail delivery on Saturdays. Cyrus Curtis had shown an interest in publishing when he was 15, selling newspapers in his hometown of Portland, Maine in 1865. That same year, he began publishing his own magazine, The Young American, but the paper was destroyed along with his home in a citywide fire in 1866. In 1872, he moved to Boston and began a business magazine, People's Ledger. It too was destroyed by a fire. In 1875, he married a Louisa Knapp. At the time, she was working for Julia Ward Howe's husband. They came to Philadelphia in 1876, three months after their daughter, Mary Louise Curtis, was born, first to see the centennial celebration. But once Curtis was here, he decided to stay. Printing costs were much cheaper and product quality was much better in Philadelphia presses than in Boston. Now, this was about the time that the magazine industry in the United States exploded. By the end of the 19th century, there were some 600 magazines being published. Women wanted magazines of fashions and household information. Godey's Ladies Book met those needs and more. It became the queen of the monthlies. This Philadelphia publication, established by Louis Antoine Godey in 1830, Godey lived from 1804 to 1878, and is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in the WXYZ Circle, Plot 3. This magazine was edited by Sarah Josepha Hale, 1788-1879, also buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. We talked about her in a prior podcast where we talked about the origins of Thanksgiving and other holidays. This publication featured stories by Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Washington Irving, and many others, along with fashion plates, along with many reproductions of articles from Great Britain. It was very popular, despite a high cover price and an annual fee of $2.50. It eventually reached a circulation of 150000 Harper's New Monthly Magazine, established 1850, was pirating English authors such as Charles Dickens, William Makepeace Thackeray, and the Bronte Sisters. The Atlantic Monthly, established in 1857, published American writers Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Harriet Beecher Stowe, John Greenleaf Whittier, and others. Scribner's Magazine was a Johnny-come-lately in 1887. It emphasized illustration and used artists such as Howard Pyle, Maxfield Parrish, and Frederick Remington. Now, why so many magazines at this time? Well, first was improvement in printing processes. The presses were faster. It was easier and cheaper to print illustrations, even with many colors. 
Second, the proliferation of railroads. They were covering more and more of the country. Timely publications could reach anywhere on the North American continent in a matter of days. Third, paper from wood pulp. New methods had been developed to create workable, clean paper out of wood pulp rather than rags. This brought the cost of the new paper to one-twentieth of what it had been. Fourth, a new business model. Until Cyrus Curtis came along, subscribers paid for the publication costs and advertisers were more or less superfluous. Curtis changed this entire business model. He cut the cost of the magazines and then made up the difference with aggressive advertising. And fifth, lower postal rates. The United States Congress was trying to avoid many of the mistakes which they felt had led to the Civil War. There was a widespread feeling that much of the misunderstanding between the North and the South arose from a lack of a common press which reached all parts of the country with the same news. In the late 1870s, Congress voted on lower postal rates for printed matter. And then when rural free delivery was mandated in 1893, this was under Postmaster General and native Philadelphian John Wanamaker, every farm, no matter how small or how remote, was now connected to the rest of the country at no extra charge through the U.S. Postal Service. Now, Cyrus Curtis initially learned the local market by selling advertising for the Philadelphia Press. In 1879, he inherited $2,000. He started the weekly paper, The Tribune and Farmer. In 1883, he decided to include a page of items that would interest women readers. They were mostly pirated from other publications. He put together a column called Women at Home, and he excitedly showed it to his wife, Louisa. She looked at it and laughed. He huffed, I suppose you could do better. Yes, she replied, so he handed the job over to her. Writing under her maiden name, Louisa Knapp, she started filling columns with advice for women, which her husband then printed. In less than two months, the number of subscribers rose sharply. The women's feature grew into a supplement and then into its own magazine, originally called the Ladies' Journal. In 1889, the name was changed to Ladies' Home Journal, and it reached a circulation of 500,000. Cyrus Curtis had learned an important lesson. When you find someone who can edit better than you, hire them. So that same year, when Louisa grew weary of the work involved in editing a magazine, Curtis hired a new editor, Edward Bach, and Louisa stepped down. Now here we have to go on a sidetrack to talk about Edouard Willem Gerard Césaire Hide Edward Bach. 1863 to 1930. He was Dutch-born, but came to the United States with his family, William J. H. Bach, 1829 to 1881, and Sika Gertrude Bach, 1837 to 1907, when he was six years old. Before he was 20, he had taken a job with Henry Holton Company, and in 1884 joined Scribner's, where he became its advertising manager. From 1884 to 1887, Bach also edited the Brooklyn Magazine. He moved to Philadelphia in 1889, and after taking over as editor of Ladies' Home Journal, 
he stayed for 30 years. In 1896, Bach married the boss's daughter, Mary Louise Curtis, 1876 to 1970. She was the only child of Cyrus and Louisa. She was 19 years old and 14 years younger than her new husband. Mary Louise had started writing for the journal when she was 13. She had used her mother's maiden name, Mary Louise Knapp. The journal grew. Under Bach's editorship, its circulation had reached 860,000 by the end of the century, and it was the first magazine ever to top the million mark in 1904. That same year, he wrote a thoughtful and rather prescient article on fake news called Why People Disbelieve the Newspapers, an explanation of the system that makes accuracy and truthfulness difficult to attain, and it was published in the magazine World's Work. Quote, that is the crime of the modern newspaper, the forgetfulness of the moral responsibility that should be felt for whatever it publishes. It is not possible for a newspaper always to be accurate. The best of correspondents and reporters may be misled. The paper must handle news quickly. Sometimes the most important items come in at the 12th hour and the public demands that it shall all be promptly published. The time available to verify statements is often very scanty. In many offices, there is no effort to be honest or careful. Dishonesty in news is either quietly winked at or unblushingly countenanced. Everything is sacrificed so long as a piece of news that will make a good story is worked up into a scare headline so as to sell the paper. End quote. In 1908, Bach purchased a prime plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery, River Section, Lot 31. It's close to the Schuylkill River. He had a pergola built, intending it to be an outdoor room. Now, this is the man who had already invented the concept of a living room as opposed to a parlor. So the concept of an outdoor burial room was not that far-fetched. He intended it to be his final resting place, and he had his parents' remains transferred there. When his mother-in-law and editorial predecessor Louisa died in 1910 at age 58, she was buried in the Bach family plot. Later, Edward's brother William John Bach, 1861 to 1928, and his sister-in-law Flora Louise Bach, 1861 to 1937, joined them. That was the last burial in this magnificent plot more than 80 years ago. In 1924, Mary Louise Bach bought three contiguous mansions on Rittenhouse Square. She rehabbed and connected them and opened the Curtis Institute of Music, which she dedicated to her father, Cyrus, who was still living at the time. Mary Louise gave an endowment of $12 million so that no one attending the school need ever worry about tuition. Meanwhile, Edward and Mary Louise built Bach Tower Gardens near their winter home in Mountain Lake Estates, Lake Wales, Florida. It was dedicated on February 1st, 1929 by President Calvin Coolidge. Less than a year later, Edward Bach died within sight of his beloved singing tower. He was 66 years old. He is buried in the gardens there and not in the plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Two of his grandsons you may have heard of, Derek Bach, former president of Harvard University, 
and folklorist, singer, songwriter Gordon Bach. If you're my age, you may remember him in the early 70s. He had a an underground hit called Peter Kagan and the Wind. Under his leadership, the Ladies' Home Journal was the first magazine of large circulation to sell at 10 cents a month and a dollar per year, which became standard. It was the first magazine to change its cover every month. It was the first to refuse questionable advertising, such as fraudulent cure-alls and get-rich-quick investment schemes. It was the first magazine to create a column for personal chats between editor and reader. It was the first to offer free college tuition to young men and women for obtaining subscriptions. And because of its wide distribution, the Ladies' Home Journal was responsible for determining the size of the U.S. Post Office Department's standard rural delivery mailbox. Now, in the meantime, the famed violinist Ephraim Zimbalist, 1889-1985, had started teaching at the Curtis Institute in 1928, and then he served as director of the school from 1941 to 1968. He was married to the famed Romanian-American soprano Alma Gluck, 1884-1938. Their son, Ephraim Zimbalist, Jr., 1918 to 2014, became an American actor and television star. Five years after Alma died, and 13 years after Edward Bach died, Ephraim Zimbalist married his boss, Mary Louise Curtis Bach, 14 years his senior. They remained married until her death in January 1970 at 1816 Delancey Place. Ephraim outlived her by 15 years. They are buried together in Hartford, Connecticut. Mary Louise's tombstone does not include her Bach name. Now we get back to Cyrus Curtis. In 1891, he formed the Curtis Publishing Company. There was a publication that intrigued Curtis, however. It was the Saturday Evening Post. It was barely scraping by with a circulation of 2,000. The owner of the post died, and the editor came to Curtis for help. He explained there was no money to get the next issue out. Now, Curtis had actually been thinking about purchasing the post based on its former glories and, of course, his love of Benjamin Franklin, whose Pennsylvania Gazette, of course, had been the inspiration for the post. He did some research. He discovered that the post owners had never copyrighted the name. That meant if it missed a single issue, the publication would forfeit rights to the name and it could be used by anyone. The Post was about to miss its next issue, and it really had nothing to sell Curtis. But in 1897, Curtis generously paid $1,000. He had workers haul the type to his office on Arch Street, and he turned out the first issue of the Saturday Evening Post from the Curtis Publishing Company. Curtis began to improve the paper, bringing fresh content and redesigning the pages. In 1899, the first full-cover illustration appeared. Many old subscribers did not like the change. They began to drop their subscriptions. Curtis then cut the cover cost of the post from a dime to a nickel, and he started plunging money into it. He was warned by his bookkeepers, you are spending too much. He spent more 
and more and even more. He finally invested about $1.25 million, the equivalent of $40 million today. But it was enough to turn the magazine around. It started attracting advertisers, and the Saturday Evening Post started to sell. And the more that it sold, the more advertisers it attracted. By 1908, circulation had reached one million, and it was still climbing. Now, in 1898, Curtis had a meeting in Boston with a young reporter from the Boston Post named George Horace Lorimer. 1867 to 1937. Lorimer was born in Louisville. He had briefly attended Yale University, but dropped out after a year or so. He spent the first eight years of his working life in the meatpacking business. He then started in the grocery business, but that failed. He moved to Boston, and he briefly attended Colby College, but he dropped out again. He worked as the newspaper reporter for both the Boston Post and the Boston Herald. He heard through the grapevine that Cyrus Curtis had purchased the Saturday Evening Post, and he wrote a letter asking for a position. Curtis was impressed with the interview and hired him as literary editor for his new magazine at $1,000 a year. A few months later, Curtis temporarily put Lorimer in charge as he sailed to Europe. He went to ask Arthur Sherburne Hardy 1847 to 1930, who was formerly editor of Cosmopolitan, but now a United States minister to Greece. Curtis wanted Hardy to assume full editorship. Somehow Curtis missed the meeting with Hardy. Lorimer, in the meantime, had done a beautiful job of editing, and Curtis read his resulting publications while he was in Europe. He cabled Lorimer, said, put your own name on the masthead of the magazine as editor-in-chief. That name remained there for nearly 40 years. Soon after Curtis returned to Philadelphia in March 1899, he called Lorimer into his office. You have been editing during my absence, he said. Yes, sir, Lorimer replied. What is your present salary? Forty dollars a week, Curtis thought for a moment. From this day, your salary is $250 weekly. Yes, sir, Lorimer replied. And that was the end of the meeting. Like with Bach, Curtis knew to give Lorimer a free hand. Lorimer knew what he wanted. He solicited stories from Bret Hart, Joel Chandler Harris, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Stephen Crane, Richard Harding Davis, Sinclair Lewis, Owen Wister, the stories that were published in the Saturday Evening Post were later put together as the novel, The Virginian. Uh, Owen Wister, of course, is buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery. He got stories from William Faulkner, Frank Norris, along with Edith Wharton, Alice Durr Miller, Mary Roberts Reinhardt, Cora Harris. Jack London's best-known novel, The Call of the Wild, was purchased for $700 and published serially in the Post in 1903. He introduced American readers to European authors such as Joseph Conrad and John Galsworthy. He turned down Rudyard Kipling several times before accepting something that he liked. Lorimer got political commentary from former President Grover Cleveland, Speakers of the House Thomas Brackett Sarr Reed, Uncle Joe Cannon, and Champ Clark. Humor? That was covered by Irvin S. Cobb, 
Ring Lardner, the entire You Know Me Al series was published in the Post, Will Rogers, activist Roy Cohen, and Harry Leon Wilson. In 1916, Alorimer discovered a 22-year-old New York artist named Norman Rockwell, 1894 to 1978. He purchased the two paintings that Rockwell had brought him and commissioned three more based on sketches. Over the next 50 years, Rockwell would supply more than 300 covers for the Saturday Evening Post. An earlier artist discovered by Lorimer was Philadelphian Catherine Richardson Wireman. 1878 to 1966. Her father, Elliot Richardson, was a doctor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, but he died of typhoid fever at age 44 in 1887. Two years later, her mother died of tuberculosis at age 40. Catherine and her four siblings went to live with four maiden aunts, one of whom, Sally Richardson, was an illustrator. Now, Catherine had wanted to draw since she was seven. And now, like Cecilia Bow, she had a strong female influence to continue her interest in art. After graduating from Abington Friends Boarding School, she entered Drexel University and studied illustration with the famed Howard Pyle. Within her last year of studying with Pyle at Drexel in 1900, Catherine submitted a cover design to the Saturday Evening Post and earned her first paycheck from illustrating when it was accepted. By the time the cover appeared on September 29, 1906, Wireman had had another illustration published on the cover of Ladies Home Journal in January 1905. It featured the first baby to ever appear on the cover of a magazine. She went on to be a house illustrator for Curtis Publishing. She painted more than 70 covers for the Post, Colliers, The Country Gentleman, Good Housekeeping, The American Woman, and many, many advertising illustrations for Cream of Wheat, Ivory Soap, and other popular products. She became the primary breadwinner of her family while raising three daughters and retired at age 70 after five decades of illustrating. She then dedicated her life to volunteer work in Germantown. When she died at age 87 in 1966 at her house on McCallum Street, she was buried in the family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section 9, Lot 160. In 1909, construction of Curtis's new building on Independence Square, Washington Square began, and the company took possession in August 1911. The architect was Edgar Vigures Seeler, 1867-1929. He was a Central High graduate who studied architecture at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Seeler had an office at 328 Chestnut Street and for five years had taught architectural design at the University of Pennsylvania. He lived with his wife, Martha Page Laughlin Seeler, 1871-1938, on Rittenhouse Square at 1828 Locust Street. Among his other works are Dental Hall, now Hayden Hall, University of Pennsylvania, First Baptist Church, 17th and Sansom, the Philadelphia Bulletin Building on Filbert Street, and 400 houses in Eddystone, Pennsylvania, for the United States Housing Corporation. Sealer died of a heart attack at age 62 in 1929. 
leaving a widow and three children. He is buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Woodlawn Section, Lot 209. The interior of the Curtis Building is still spectacular. It features a terraced waterfall and fountain in a marble hall, an atrium with faux Egyptian palm trees, and the magnificent 15 by 49 foot glass mosaic Dream Garden, designed by Maxfield Parrish, 1870 to 1966, and made by Lewis Comfort Tiffany and Tiffany Studios. The glass mosaic took six months to install in 1916. It is made of 100,000 pieces of hand-fixed Favrile glass in 260 different colors. In addition to editing, George Horace Lorimer was writing. His most successful work was Letters from a Self-Made Merchant to His Son. These letters were written to Pierpont Graham, a freshman at Harvard University, by his pork-packing father in Chicago and they contained advice about college and work life and what a young man should and should not do. They were published anonymously in the Post, but when published as a book in 1902, they were under Lorimer's own name. The book is available free online. Most of it is still relevant 120 years after publication. If you're a fan of C.S. Lewis, it may remind you in many ways of his Screwtape letters. Among my favorites, you got to get up every morning with determination if you're going to go to bed with satisfaction. When an office begins to look like a family tree, you'll find worms tucked away snug and cheerful in most of the apples. You'll find that education's about the only thing lying around loose in this world, and that it's about the only thing a fellow can have as much of as he's willing to haul away. Everything else is screwed down tight and the screwdriver lost. Letters from a self-made merchant to his son ended up being translated into more languages than any American work since Uncle Tom's Cabin. Lorimer's editing was prodigious. After a long day at his desk, producing a weekly magazine that often exceeded 250 pages, he went home with a briefcase full of manuscripts, which he read at a rate of 100,000 words a night, half a million words a week. And then he settled into bed for a couple of hours of leisure reading, but he never read other magazines. The Post guaranteed to read your story within 72 hours of receipt and to pay on acceptance rather than on publication. The Saturday Evening Post became as middle class and middle of the road as it could possibly be. Lorimer was politically conservative and very much a capitalist. This was reflected in the articles he published in the magazine. Lorimer intended to create a national magazine by appealing to the average American and in the process would invent the average white middle-class American. The radical Upton Sinclair wrote that the material in the Post was, quote, as standardized as soda crackers. Originality is taboo, new ideas are treason, social sympathy a crime, and the one virtue of man is to produce larger and larger quantities of material things. End quote. 
The December 12, 1908 cover of the Saturday Evening Post featured a bold headline announcing that the Post had attained, quote, more than a million a week circulation, end quote. By 1909, publisher Curtis saw the value in both his publications rising and for the first time gave an equal salary, $50,000 a year, to Edward Bach and George Lorimer. And in 1909, Lorimer hired 25-year-old Adelaide Walbaum Neal, spelled N-E-A-L-L, 1884-1957. She was London-born and a 1906 graduate of Bryn Mawr College. She was to help him with the woman's perspective. She stayed until 1942. While never a radical feminist, Neil had strong views about women's suffrage and women's education. With her arrival, the post-editorial pages started expressing positive views about increased wages for women workers. In the place of laments over the passing of the self-sacrificing homemaker of Grandmother's Day were articles addressing the miseries of the average housewife's lot. An astonishing column in 1913 stated, quote, Housework, as the ordinary small American household is conducted, is excessively stupid and irksome. No intelligent white man would submit to it a week without running amuck and shooting up the place, end quote. The editorial ends, When the dishes are done, she ought to have interests outside the house as different and as stimulating as possible. This work had to be approved by Lorimer. It was almost certainly written by Neil. In the 1920s, the Post hit its peak with circulation nearing 3 million. Issues were selling out. They were filled with pieces by celebrities, popular fiction writers, wealthy businessmen, and advertisements. Lorimer explained the publication this way. A magazine like The Post has to be like a full meal, beginning with soup, going on to the most important course, which is roast beef, then maybe a salad, and it must have a dessert. Once Cyrus Curtis made an editorial comment, He told Lorimer that his wife Louisa did not like an article that was in the magazine. Lorimer replied, I'm not editing the post for your wife. When Cyrus Curtis took over his new building, he decided it was way too big for just two publications. In 1911, he bought a periodical that had been around since 1852 with the honorable name The Country Gentleman. The circulation was said to be 24,000. But when delinquent subscribers were purged, it dipped to a bare 2,000. Critics predicted failure. Curtis knew nothing about farming, and it was madness to publish a magazine about farming from the big city. It did take a few years for the country gentleman to hit its stride, and it had to convert from a weekly to a monthly in 1925, but Curtis made it successful. He was not afraid to invest in infrastructure. Curtis Publishing initiated and developed quick-drying inks for letterpress web, the first successful four-color web, better quality in mass production printing, and high-speed binding. All of this was contained in the Curtis Building. These innovations modernized the printing industry and completely transformed magazine publication. 
1932, the Saturday Evening Post carried more than $22.5 million in advertising revenue, three times that of any other national magazine except, of course, Ladies Home Journal, which was holding its own with more than $8.1 million in advertising. Also in 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected President of the United States, and the Post had to adjust its political viewpoints. Lorimer tried keeping the Post to open-minded consideration of the New Deal, urging, quote, it was absolutely essential that the people should give their support and confidence to President Roosevelt, end quote. The editorial soon mixed cautious praise with cautious criticism, warning against, quote, an attempt to rebuild society at one fell swoop, end quote. Lorimer, who had never completed college, was never an admirer of intellectuals, and he felt their presence in the Roosevelt administration spelled the country's doom. The radical professor was now a policy maker. Quote, no thoughtful man can escape the conclusion that many of the brain trust's ideas and plans are based on Russian ideology, that we are steadily herded to the left, and that fundamental American ideas are in danger of being scrapped. End quote. Cyrus Curtis died on 7 June 1933 at his estate Linden in Wincote. He was interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, Plymouth Section, Lot 78. His second wife, the former Kate Stanwood Cutter Pillsbury, 1856 to 1932, had died the year before. Had he lived but a few months longer, he would have seen the cumulative gross advertising of his magazines reach the $1 billion mark. He remains in the top 20 of richest Americans ever. He donated $2 million to the Franklin Institute, $1.25 million to the Drexel Institute of Technology for the construction of Curtis Hall, and $1 million to the University of Pennsylvania. He donated pipe organs to many institutions in Philadelphia, and on the day of his funeral, all of the organs were played in his honor. He was lauded in magazines and newspapers across the land. Lorimer took over as publisher, but he retired from the post in 1936. He was feeling increasingly out of touch in a country that had elected Franklin D. Roosevelt for a second term. He still could not reconcile himself to the New Deal. His cigar habit caught up with him. He died of throat cancer on 22 October 1937. He was 70 years old. On his death, the New York Times described him as, quote, a sort of Henry Ford of American literature. Week after week, there sprang from his editorial assembly line technically perfect stories and articles wedged in between costly advertising and illustrated by the best artists in the country. It was really hard to tell whether this was a compliment or a put-down. His mausoleum at Laurel Hill Cemetery may be the one most frequently seen by people driving past on Kelly Drive, but mostly ignored by people on foot inside the cemetery. Just a few hundred feet from his former boss's first wife, Louisa Knapp Curtis. After visiting Louisa and Harry Callis, you pass it on the right while you're walking up the hill toward Owen Wister. Leave the road, walk down the steps, 
and visit the front of this mausoleum, which almost looks like a fortress. Look through the front door. You'll see what looks like an altar, and you will see a light. There's a stipulation in the contract for the mausoleum that there must be a perpetual light in it. There is apparently a cord running from the gatehouse to the mausoleum several hundred yards away. And there's a small electric bill that's generated by this eternal flame. This actually became a matter of discussion between the cemetery and the members of the Lorimer family during blackouts during World War II. When you walk past the mausoleum, you will see that the light is still on. Adelaide Neal rose to a strong second position behind Lorimer at the Post, but she never got the top editor position. Her tenure, which lasted for 33 years, was nearly as long as Lorimer's. She's remembered mostly for the work she did with such writers as Mary Roberts Reinhardt, Booth Tarkington, and Joseph Hergesheimer, who wrote naturalistic novels of decadent life among the very wealthy. Neal never married. Her spare time was spent as a board member of Bryn Mawr College, the United Service Club, and the Indian Rights Association. When she died in 1957 in her home at 116 West Evergreen Avenue in Chestnut Hill, she left $25,000 to Bryn Mawr College to establish the Frank L. and Mina W. Neal Scholarship Fund. She is interred in the family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section 14, Lot 163. I'm going to remind you of something so you'll put it on your calendar when things open up again. That is the exhibit at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Their legacies, the women of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. It's an exhibit that celebrates the achievements of 16 women buried at Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. And it's just one way that the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are celebrating 100 women for the 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment. I talked about one of the women today, Catherine Weirman. I've talked about others in the past. Now, when this exhibit opens, it will display on Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturday through Sunday from 9.30 a.m., to 4.30 p.m. It's in the museum at Laurel Hill Cemetery next to the gatehouse, and it will run through Thursday, December 31st, 2020. The exhibit is free. It's open to all comers, but donations to the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are greatly appreciated. Next time, in the August edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, it's some fathers of American medicine. I think everyone knows that Benjamin Rush is the father of American psychiatry, and Philip Singh Physic is the father of American surgery. They are not at Laurel Hill. They are interred at Christ Church Burial Ground. But did you know that West Laurel Hill is the final resting place for the father of American homeopathy? and that Laurel Hill Cemetery is permanent home to the father of American endocrinology, the father of American physiology, 
and the father of American homeopathic surgery. And if you've ever been in an operating room, you know about the Alice Forsip. Yep, we got him too. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballakinwood, with parking at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You can wander on your own or when they are available again, you can take one of more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year. For now, check the website and there are occasional Zoom tours given by the same guides. Another thing you can do is download the apps for both cemeteries. The one for Laurel Hills Cemetery actually gives you little biographies of people as you walk from marker to marker. Find out more at the laurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around if you want to hear my many references for this show. The bibliography for this show is rather long. Uh, Cyrus Curtis, George Horace Lorimer, and the Saturday Evening Post have been objects of interest to scholars and historians for many decades. I had a lot of material from which to choose, plus, of course, contemporary newspaper articles. First, the one that you're most interested in is probably letters from a self-made merchant to his son, being the letters written by John Graham, head of the House of Graham and Company, Pork Packers in Chicago, familiarly known on change as Old Gorgon Graham, to his son Pierpont, facetiously known to his intimates as Piggy. That's by George Horace Lorimer, Small, Maynard & Company, Boston, 1903. As I said before, you can find this free online and download it. The Life and Times of Cyrus H.K. Curtis, 1850-1933, by Walter D. Fuller. This was a speech given at the New Coleman Society of England, American Branch, New York, in 1948 as the New Coleman Address. The Business Ethic for Boys, the Saturday Evening Post and the Post Boys by Jan Cohn. This is from the Business History Review, Volume 61, Number 2, Summer 1987, pages 185 to 215. Cohn expanded this research essay into a book, Creating America, George Horace Lorimer and the Saturday Evening Post by Jan Cohn, University of Pittsburgh Press, 1989. 
Magazines for the Millions, Gender and Commerce in the Ladies' Home Journal and the Saturday Evening Post, 1880 to 1910. This is by Helen Damon Moore, State University of New York Press, Albany, 1994. An article, Redefining Thrift, the Ladies' Home Journal and the Modern Woman by Jennifer Scanlon. This was in Pennsylvania Legacies, Volume 12, Number 2, November 12th, pages 12 through 17. And finally, on Catherine Wireman, there is an excellent, excellent biography by Nicole Mirashudo that is published online, Penn State University, Pennsylvania Center for the Book, Literary, and Cultural Heritage Map of PA, 2013. I accessed it on June 16, 2020. That can be found at pabook.libraries.psu.edu slash literary-cultural-heritage-map.pa slash bios slash wireman underline Catherine with an A. Thanks for listening.